Luke 12, 48. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? These are the words of Christ. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts today to these words. We thank you for the week that you've given us, for every blessing in our life, for life itself. We thank you for redemption through Christ on the cross and the hope of our salvation and eternal life in heaven. In the minutes to come, may you be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Today, we continue with a little series on leadership. Today is the second message, uh, the series I've entitled The Gift of Leadership, and today's message is the first law of leadership. The first law of leadership. My kids are growing up way too fast. In fact, um, one of them has already flown the coop, but she's watching online right now. <clears throat> I was sharing with my wife recently, Cherry, about the kids and, and as a parent and time is fleeting and so short because they're, they're in the process of growing up and moving away. Those life lessons that I really want to teach them, not because it's in a book or a, a guide on parenting or an article that I read, just what my parents taught me and what I hope to teach them. I have the same kind of desires as a pastor. In my time that I have left here at this church and on this, on this planet, I, I, I want to share with you some of the most important principles that you will ever hear in your life that will, will free you and empower you in your life and God fulfilling his purpose in your life. And to that extent, this little series on, on leadership is the same goal for you as it is for my own children. Two of them are here in the room today. And so I want them to, to know this. I want my children to grow up to be leaders. I don't think any parent thinks, you know, I hope my kid is a sheep. Uh, that they just follow a shepherd and they don't ever step up. They're just a mindless sheep. I hope that they just stay quiet, that they don't ever volunteer for anything, that they don't ever uh, excel in life to a place of leadership. No parent thinks that. Surely you don't think that about your children. Do you not want your kids to be leaders, no matter how old your children are? And so that's my desire as well. My kids grow up to be good, godly leaders. So this merits, this message and this series is for them, but it's also for you as God's people just as much, no matter where you are in life. And remember, Moses was a shepherd until he was 80, and then he became one of the most famous, if not the most famous leader in the entire Bible other than Jesus. I'll give you some good news. I usually have three or four main points in every sermon that I preach as a preacher and as a Baptist preacher. Today, I have one point, only one point, and when I finish that point, we will conclude. Uh, the early service got out early today. I think they were all in shock, and so I may let you go early today. 
Now, I told them that one point has 32 subpoints, but <laughs> but I, I intend this to be short and to the point. And it's hard for a preacher to do that. Let's begin with the obvious question, what is a leader? I think that's a, a fair question because if you and I have differing opinions about what a leader is, what makes a leader, then we're not going to get very far. I read many definitions. You can Google it. That's exactly what I did. And you'll get the Wikipedia articles and the dictionary articles that, or descriptions. And you'll have all kinds of articles that have been written from every religion and every newspaper and every media outlet. What is a leader? Every author, everybody writes on that. In fact, you could read literally tens of thousands, if not millions of articles and definitions online. You'll never finish. But here are just a few, I boiled it down to just a couple real quick. Definitions of leadership. A leader is the person who convinces other people to follow. And I always say this, if you don't have any followers, you're not a leader. <laughs> or your leadership is hypothetical. Leaders have followers. A great leader inspires confidence in other people and moves them to action. A great leader possesses a clear vision, is courageous, has integrity, honesty, humility, and clear focus. Great leaders help people reach their goals. I like that. Leaders are good communicators. Leaders are not afraid of failure. A leader is more of a teacher and less of a boss. Maybe the best question today is, what is the difference between a leader and everyone else? Because there are differences. And some people can spot them and some people can't. And some people never thought about it. You, we just know some people are leaders and some people are not leaders. What's the difference? What makes a leader a leader is the question we should ask. In the Bible, we witness many leaders. Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Peter, Paul, and of course Jesus and so many other leaders. But today, I want to look just briefly at an impressive leader that many people have never noticed. And her name is Deborah. Do you know who Deborah is? There's very little written about her in the Bible, but what we have is significant. What she did was of such integrity and of such strength. In fact, we don't even have a single word that is negative about Deborah in the Bible. No criticism from God or anybody else. Look with me in Judges chapter 4, verse 4, and we're going to look at Deborah. Judges chapter 4, verse 4. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. Now, before we get into the story, that's the introduction of Deborah. It's an interesting introduction, is it not? Who was she? And how did she become a leader? To answer that, you have to look at the time in the history of the Israelites. This is during the period of the judges. That's what we call it. <clears throat> As you know, the Israelites found their beginning in Abraham and his offspring, who eventually became slaves in Egypt. God called Moses to lead them out of slavery after they'd been in bondage for more than 400 years. And God led them through a 40-year generational 
journey to the promised land. They've now gone into the promised land, conquered the promised land, and inherited it. And eventually, they'll have a king. First Saul, and then David, and then a whole bunch of kings after him for the northern kingdom and kings for the southern kingdom. And so they'll have lots and lots of kings and governors and all those kinds of things. But right now, they don't have anybody. Moses and Joshua and those great leaders have all died. And now there's no leadership in the country. This may boggle your mind. There was no government at all. None. There was no IRS, no taxes to pay. There was no court system uh, other than just local town leaders. There was no government. Can you imagine our country with no government? Now, I got an open woohoo in the first service. <laughs> because uh, it would solve a lot of problems. It really would. Because I get tired of the hypocrisy and the, the jealousy and the bitterness and the infighting and the pettiness of our government. Most of what I see on the news is bad news about our government. Not very complimentary. And I see a lot of things that are very disappointing about our government. But of course, without our government, just like without our police, there would be anarchy in our country. There are people in our nation, and there are many people in our nation that need to be governed. So we find ourselves at a time in history, in history of Israel where there was no government. And so what do people do if they have disagreements or disputes? They go to Deborah. I just find this fascinating. Um, and so uh, in the book of Judges, there is a secular, sick, sick, there's a cycle of generations that come and go. And in every generation, they end up inevitably doing the same thing. They do what is right in their own eyes, the Bible says, and what is right in their own eyes is to do whatever they want to do. Which, of course, is disobedient to God because that's our tendency. That's our old nature. And so the nation falls under sin and God allows them to be judged to fall into the hands of an enemy who oppresses them. The people of God, after they're in that oppression for a certain amount of time, they become, begin to rethink their relationship with God. They regret what they've done. They repent from it and they cry out to God, God, help us, release us from these terrible oppressors. And then God brings a leader, also called a judge, into the country to lead them out of that oppression. The names of the judges in the book of Judges were Othniel, Ehud, Shemgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jar, Jephthat, Isben, Elon, Abdon, and the most famous as well as the most flawed, a man named Samson. We don't know much about Deborah, but what we do know is fascinating. First, we see in this passage that Deborah was a prophetess. A prophetess. Now, she's not the only prophetess in the Bible. A prophetess is a female prophet. Word to the obvious. She's not the only one in the Bible. There are several others. Miriam, the sister of Moses, was described by, in the Bible as a prophetess. In 2 Kings, there was a prophetess named Huldah. In Nehemiah, there was a false prophetess that gave 
uh, Nehemiah difficulty, and her name was Noadiah. And although her name is not mentioned, the Bible tells us that the prophet Isaiah was himself married to a prophetess in Isaiah chapter 8. In the New Testament, there was a prophetess named Anna, or Anna, who was in her 80s when Jesus was born. Do you remember her? She lived day and night, the Bible says, at the temple, praying and longing for the day that she would see her Redeemer. So when she saw Jesus, she said he would be the Redeemer of Israel. In a letter to the church in Thyatira, in Revelation, Jesus himself spoke of a false prophetess there who was leading the people into sin. Now, we don't know her name, but we do know the name that Jesus gave her. Does anybody remember? He called her Jezebel. And she was named Jezebel by Jesus in reference to this awful, evil, wicked woman that was in the Old Testament. So in the Bible, a true prophet or prophetess was always chosen by God to speak on behalf of God. But after Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, uh, the need for prophets was pretty much ended. That is, you and I have the Word of God, and we have the Redeemer of God that intercedes for us on our behalf. That is Jesus himself on the cross. So we don't need anybody to intercede for us and for our sins like the prophets would because we have Christ. But also, if we need a word from God, we have the Holy Spirit as we read the Word of God. So we don't need somebody. You don't have to have me to hear from God. I'm assuming you know that. I hope that what I say to you on Sunday mornings helps, but you don't need me. You have the Holy Spirit as a guide and you have the Word of God as a guide to speak to you. But this important story about Deborah brings us to today's point. And here's the one point I want to make. Write it down. It's very short. It's only three words long, but very, very important. It's not flashy, but it is important. And again, I want you to know this. I want my kids to know this. Here's the point. Leaders take responsibility. If you want to know what the difference is between a leader and everyone else, is leaders take responsibility. Deborah held court for the whole nation under a tree. <laughs> wow. You know why she did that? Well, she wasn't appointed by the president. There was no president. The king did not appoint her. There was no king. She, was, she didn't run for election. There was no office to run for. She had no desk with a placard on the desk that said, Prophet is Deborah. And if anybody questioned, she'd just point to the sign. No. God appointed her as a prophetess and a judge in Israel. And people learned her fame went throughout the kingdom. If people had disputes and matters that needed a judgment, they would walk for days or weeks to come to see Deborah. She would go out under a tree, named after her. She would go out under the tree, convene the court. They would come and give their arguments, and she would render a decision, and they would abide by those decisions. She was someone who took responsibility. Now, I'm curious to ask, where's her husband in this? What's he doing? Or why don't the men of the country step up and take responsibility? We don't hear about any of them. It's Deborah who takes responsibility. So everyone came to her with their problems. She would listen, and she gave wise solutions. Leaders take responsibility while others blame 
or run. So let's look at the story about what happened with Deborah. And this is the only other passage I have for you. Judges chapter 4 verse 6 says this. She, referring to Deborah, sent for, that's either Barak or Barak. I'm going to use Barak. <laughs> she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and gave, give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. So here in this brief passage, we see what the problem is. This, this period of time of the judges when Deborah lived and gave her judgments was a time where the Israelites were being oppressed by a foreign king. I think his name was Jabin. And he had an army. And they oppressed the Israelites. The Israelites had called out to God. God had heard their cries and had decided to forgive their sins. And he, he decides that there will be a, a judgment upon his army, the bad guy's army. And so he says to Deborah, I want you to go tell Barak to muster the troops, go down to a certain place. I'm going to have you lure that uh, bad king or his army to this place. And there's going to be an ambush and you guys are going to have a great victory over them and they're not going to oppress you anymore. So she does exactly what she's told to do. She calls a, a committee meeting with Barak and he, she says the good news. Hey, <laughs> God's going to deliver us and he's going to use you to lead the army. Now, Barak, he doesn't say, look, you're just a woman. I'm not going to listen to you because it was a man's world at the time. And he could have said that, but he did not dare do that. He didn't say, I don't know if you're a legitimate prophetess or not. Maybe you just imagined that. He doesn't dare say that. There's no question that she is God's servant and God was speaking to her and through her. He never questions that. What he questions is the idea that he's going to go at it alone. And he says, you know, um, that's good news. That's, that's great. I tell you what, I'll go. Okay, okay, God wants me to go, I'll go. But I want you at my side. I want you to go with me. Now, why would he say that? Any ideas? Yeah, my first thought is, you big chicken. <laughs> he wants to use her as his good luck charm. <laughs> you know, that really, that's what it is. He wants her there. And, you know, part of me can't blame him. If, if I'm in the presence of a, a genuine prophet of God, in this case, a prophetess, I think I'd want the prophet with me because the prophet is the one that told me and uh, won't hurt to have a prophet with me. And so we find out that, in fact, she says, okay, I'll go, but there's going to be a problem. We'll get to that in just a minute. So Barak said, I'll only fight if Deborah is at my side. Um, and so Deborah says, all right, but you won't get credit for this victory. He was like, okay, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I have learned to dislike politics. Everything I see is negative. Congress has record low 
popularity. The president has the lowest popularity in his presidency. The last president, President Trump, had terrible uh, popularity. And everything that we see and hear, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, everybody's mad at everybody all the time, and it's just discouraging. Are you not just discouraged? We see so many uh, examples of how not to be a leader in our government. We see many presidents over the years, and they all seem to blame their predecessor for their problems. Current president is no exception. For every bad decision that they themselves have made, they just blame the previous administration. We see that in Congress and in the Senate. We see that on a national level and a state level. There's a lot to blame to go around, and everybody just blame, blame, blame. And so my, my, for my kids and my family and for my church family, I plead with you to stop blaming and start taking responsibility. It'll change your life. Now, I won't say it'll be a lot of fun in the beginning, but it can be life-changing. Um, we see our Congress and our Senate hold hearings, and they'll have witnesses come in, uh, and the witnesses will testify, and it's the same now as years ago and decades ago. People come in before the Senate because they're called to come in. They're subpoenaed, and so they come in there, and immediately, because they did something they weren't supposed to be doing, and immediately they just blame. Well, it's this person's fault, or it's that department's fault, so they'll have that person or that department come in, and that second department comes in, they blame the first people of the first department, and everybody just blames everybody else. It's just a blame game. For once, I would like to see one of our national leaders, from the president on down, to those people who are testifying before the Senate, and say, you know what? I did it. I own it. I'm not going to blame anybody. I take full responsibility to let me have it. Now, maybe that's happened. I don't watch CNN, or excuse me, I don't watch CNN or C-SPAN. So maybe they do that, but I've not seen that because we live in a world where everybody is encouraged to never take responsibility for anything. Nobody wants to take responsibility. To my kids and my fellow Christians, if you mess up, own it. Admit it. Take responsibility for it. Stop blaming others for your poor decisions and your disappointing results in life. If you get a speeding ticket, it's not the police officer's fault. It's your fault. Stop speeding. If you're overweight, it's not McDonald's fault. Stop eating so much. Stop blaming the government for what you have brought about on yourself. If you're broke, it's probably your fault. Get a job. Stop blaming your spouse for your unhappiness. Stop blaming your parents for your disappointing life. Stop blaming the world because you don't have any friends. I remind you of this basic truth in life to my kids and to my church family, and I know I've told you before, this basic truth in life, if you're likable, people will like you. If you're not likable, people probably won't like you. If you're loving, people will probably love you back. If you're not loving, you're going to be very lonely. That's the reality. Stop blaming your friends for your issues. Stop blaming your boss because you're not getting that big promotion. Stop blaming God for every bad thing that happens in this fallen world. Stop blaming that pastor or that church because you aren't where you should be spiritually. Own it. Take responsibility for it. Whether great, good, bad, or terrible, you probably are where you are because of you. 
Are there injustices in life? Yes. No question. You've been wrong and I've been wrong. But are we blaming others far beyond these injustices? Yes. So stop. Stop living the lie of compromise that says it's okay to live a mediocre life as long as I can blame somebody else for it. I would say stop living a mediocre life. Own it. Get over it. Rise above it. Godly leaders own it and move forward. So Deborah said this to Barak. You have to have me by your side during the battle. That's fine. But don't expect a parade in your honor when this is over. So to be fair, preachers aren't much better. <laughs> I've read the following article by Josh Hunt. It's entitled, and this is about preachers. It's entitled Victimitis. That's the name of the article, Victimitis. So we have a pandemic in this uh, world far worse than COVID. It's called victimitis. He says this, there is a disease that has reached epidemic proportions in America. It has deeply affected all of us, even the clergy. It is the disease of victimitis. The disease of victimitis is a belief, the belief that I am a victim of someone else. It is someone else's fault. Finger pointing is at least as old as the Garden of Eden. Remember Adam and Eve pointing, pointing, pointing and apparently was not eradicated by the cross? How many times have I heard preachers whine and moan about, quote, the deacons are obnoxious? By the way, I haven't said that, by the way. <laughs> the deacons are obnoxious. No one is committed. I can't get anyone to do anything anymore. The field is hard. The people are cold and indifferent, and no one wants to work anymore, end quote. The hidden assumption in all of these statements is that I am not the problem. The problem is over there. It's always over there. It is someone else's fault. I'm behaving perfectly. Someone else is to blame. Great progress can begin when I recognize that I am part of the problem. Maybe a big part of the problem. Maybe a small part of the problem. Not much happens until I admit that I might be a part of the problem. I might be a part of the reason why the church in America as a whole is corporately disobedient to what God has called us to do. Now, there is a problem in America, and it isn't political, it is spiritual. And at least in part, it is our fault. We have quietly let it happen because we've been too quiet. We don't share the truth like we should. We don't make the calls that we could. We have taken the good news and made it secret news. It's time to, for us to wake up, to own up, to fess up, and to buckle up. Time is short, the kingdom is coming, and the harvest is ready. Be the kingdom leaders that God has called you to be. That brings us back to our passage at the very beginning that I shared in Luke chapter 12. Jesus defines leadership like this. From, for everyone who has been given much, that's you and me, because we've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have received redemption and forgiveness and salvation. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. 
Now, if you're sitting there thinking, this isn't for me. I'm not a leader. I don't want to be a leader. The truth is God has called you in his kingdom to be leader. There are, there are no kingdom followers. There are only kingdom leaders. There are no kingdom victims, only kingdom victors. And that's what we've been called to be. He's called us to be leaders in this dark world. In fact, Jesus says that you and I are salt and light. And he uses those terms in the Sermon on the Mount because this world is dark and flavorless. <laughs> it has no true meaning, no true joy, no true hope as it stumbles in the darkness. And we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. Now here's for us. Azel is growing. And the opportunity is increasing for us. I can't even get out the front hardly anymore, especially in the afternoons. I'll sit there for five or ten minutes. I can't even turn right. So I go out behind the dentist's office over here. Excuse me, orthodontist. Don't tell him I call him a dentist. I, I go out behind his office and I turn left and go around just because I can't get on the road anymore because it's so packed with people. You don't need me to tell you that. We have a tremendous opportunity. Don't tell me there's no harvest here because the harvest is ripe. And it's just going to get more and more and more in the future. So what are we going to do in response? Wherever you are in your own life, I want you to know you can be more. You can do more. You can affect this world more powerfully than you know. But you'll have to take responsibility for your own life in order for that to happen. Will you do that today? Help me as we lead the kingdom in this community. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage and this wonderful example in Deborah. She doesn't cower. She doesn't quit. She doesn't say, I'll hide in my house while you go do it. She steps up. She was formidable and fearless. She was faithful. She took responsibility. Help us to do that today. And Father, I know this is not an easy message. It's not something that's fun or that we want to do. But we are your people, called by your name, redeemed by your Son, empowered and gifted, everlasting by your mercy. And as citizens of the everlasting kingdom of God, you have called us to be leaders. That's what salt is. That's what light means. We are called to be leaders in this world of sheep that desperately need guidance. Help us to do that this week. As we're praying, no one's looking around. Can I challenge you right here, right now, today, to come before your God and say, God, Help me to take responsibility for my life. Help me to stop blaming everybody and everyone else. As hard as it is, I have to say, it's not the government's fault. It's my doing. It's not my boss's fault, my teacher's fault, my spouse's fault, my kid's fault. It's my doing. It's not my church's fault. It's my doing. I own it. God, help me to be the leader, the salt, the light, 
that you've created me to be in Christ Jesus. As you're praying, no one's looking around, would you stand? And as you stand and as you continue to pray right now, if God is leading you, maybe you just want to come and get on your knees and say, God, make me the leader you want me to be. Humble yourself before God. And maybe God is calling you to come and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Or maybe God is calling you or your family to join with First Baptist Church and you want to serve him in this community through this place. Just come down and say, Pastor, we'd like to join. Right now, this is your opportunity in Christ. As we pray, you come.